Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Normally, there are two of us. Axel, get lay down. Please, buddy. I love you. Stop. No. Lay down. Welcome to Taboos. My name's Celeste and I'm your host today. Today I'm going to be flying solo. Allie Girl is out sick and due to conflicts of schedules, we decided to just try something different. So here we are. Welcome. We are a podcast that talks about taboo culture with foul mouths and drinks in hand. Hence, today I have a drink in hand. Even though I'm by myself and it feels a little weird, we're just going to roll with it, okay? Today I am drinking a Centennial Pale Ale from Founders Brewing Company. And if you have sensed a hint of irony, you're onto something. This is an India Pale Ale. And the slogan of the beer actually just really made me smile, along with the can itself. The can itself has two Centennials on it, and they are holding up the word Founders, which again, is the brewing company, and it's just really, really fucking beautiful. But then also, the slogan says, brewed for us, which I think was so fantastic, and I loved it. So, here we are. It's really good. It's really hoppy, and this is a fucking huge can that I was not ready for. It's a little darker than I would like it to be. It's just a lot more full-bodied than I would have expected, but it's really delicious. Also, because I'm flying solo today and I don't want to miss anything, we're going to change up the format just a little tiny bit, okay? I'm going to throw our socials out up front just to make sure that I don't miss them because y'all know how I get in my rants and I just ramble and who knows what's going to come out of my fucking mouth on this episode. So really seriously, I want to get our socials out of the way. So if you're not familiar, you can reach us at taboosthepod.com. That's our website. Allie Girl made it and it's so fucking awesome. It's my favorite. I love it. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Taboos the Pod. We are just Taboos on Facebook. And you can always reach out to us with any taboo topic suggestions or any feedback or comments about the show at taboospodcast at gmail.com. I think I did that right. I don't know. Dear Allie, did I do that right? Moving on. Before we get into this episode, though, I want to share with y'all the intention of why we slotted this episode for today, because this is the Thursday before the 4th of July. For anybody who doesn't know the significance of the 4th of July for any of our non-American listeners, 
this is America's birthday. This is the day we celebrate red, white, and blue. This year, however, I just feel a little bit different about celebrating. And I can't help but share that with you guys. Because that's what I do. That's just how I move. So with the significance of the placement of this episode out there, I'd really like to move forward with our disclaimer, which says, Hi, I'm not a lawyer. Also, I'm not from 1787, which is when the foundation of our democracy as a country was founded. Okay, let's just get that out of the way. The following information is based on research, experience, and honestly, common fucking sense. I love this country deeply. I love the potential of this country even more. I'd be lying if I said I was proud of America because I'm really just not. Our country's incredibly flawed, run by people behind the curtain who majority of the time care about themselves and those who think like them, and that's it. Maybe it's because I lived through 9-11 and felt what it meant to be an American on 9-12. I believe in a country, I believe in this country, based on that day. We all felt the same hurt at the same time, in the same traumatic fucking way. And as a country, we came together. Trauma bonding or not, that sense of community on that one day before it all really set in, before the judgments and the conspiracies and the racism and the divisiveness set in, I am proud to be an American because of that day. And as proud as I am to say that, that means I also have to be honest about the fact that I'm not necessarily proud to be an American every day because this country does not put its people first. And I believe the following research will make us question if it ever really did. There will also be a content warning for themes of racism, both direct and systemic, including but not limited to slavery and related concepts as well as descriptions of violence, hate crimes, sexism, and domestic violence. So with that exciting information, let's jump into our little time machines. That was my time machine noise. First, I want to talk about the preamble itself, and I'd like to start with the definition, which is a brief introductory statement of the Constitution's fundamental purposes and guiding principles. But what is the preamble, though? In its literal context, it is, quote, We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Amen. Please keep in mind, this is the literal foundation of this country's code of conduct. The foundation of the law. The foundation of the law as we know it today, ladies and gentlemen. So I want to talk about the history of the preamble just a little bit. A little perspective here I think would be really good for this conversation. The following information came from We the People, a common interpretation from constitutioncenter.org. Quote, the preamble of the U.S. Constitution, the document's famous 52 words, introduces everything that is to follow in the Constitution's seven articles and 27 amendments. End quote. We're going to pause here for just a second, okay? Per the Oxford Dictionary, 
An amendment is a, quote, minor change or addition designed to improve a text, piece of legislation, etc., end quote. In legal terms, an amendment is defined as a formal or official change made to a law, contract, constitution, or other legal document. It is based on the verb to amend, which means to change for the better. Amendments can add, remove, or update parts of these agreements. End quote. I just want to point out the difference there. The difference between the word amendment and the actual definition of the word as it relates to the law don't seem to have the same contextual implication. Let me clarify my thought here. Per the dictionary, in the fundamental word, a minor change to improve a text, meaning to make better, right? However, as it relates to the law, it is only specifically called out as a formal or official change made to a law or contract or what the fuck ever. Isn't it weird that when we bring actual legality into the concept of an amendment, it isn't also very clearly laid out that the word itself is to imply improvement? Are you scratching your head a little bit? Because I am. So let me share with you my definition of amendment because I don't think it's the same even though it is the same. So really, in Celeste terms, they're the legal version of both a public apology for wrong done just as much as they are a band-aid solution. Please don't hear me minimizing their importance, however. They are important. Incredibly fucking important, in fact. But just like all wounds, they must be assessed. Band-aids only work for scrapes and cuts. Band-aids do not work for bullet holes. And that's what we as a country have. We have so many bullet holes. And we only are talking about 27 band-aids. You guys. What? Okay, leaving that there. Back to the preamble. Most importantly, I'd like to point out that the preamble declares who is enacting the Constitution, meaning the people of the United States specifically. Quote, the document is the collective enactment of all U.S. citizens. The Constitution is, inner quote, owned, so to speak, by the people, not by the government, or any branch thereof. We the people are the stewards of the U.S. Constitution and remain ultimately responsible for its continued existence and its faithful interpretation, end quote. That sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Doesn't that sound like we have so much power, you and I have so much power, to make decisions about what happens in our country? Let me ask you, dear listener, when was the last time you felt like you really got to make decisions about what happens in our country? What happens in our states? What happens in your state? Maybe even what happens in your own community? I'm just saying, this constitution is written in verbiage that makes it sound like we the people really have the power. But do you feel powerful? I don't. So actually, some interesting facts about the preamble's upbringing, if you will. There was a real debate over the way that the preamble was to begin. The Founding Fathers inserted the language at the Constitutional Convention by the quote-unquote Committee of Style. Shout out to PR teams repping rich white dudes since 1787. Quote, it was between, inner quote, we the people of the states of end inner quote, followed by the listing of the 13 states. For a simple practical reason, this was vetoed. 
The con to this, in all honesty, the reason they didn't go forward with this, was because it was unclear how many states would actually ratify the proposed new constitution, end quote. So really, other than being a PR stunt, the naming convention was especially prevalent as it relates to Article 7, which declared that the Constitution would come into effect once nine of the 13 states had ratified it, a.k.a. accepted it via vote. Quote, as it happened, two states, North Carolina and Rhode Island, did not ratify until later, when George Washington had been inaugurated as the first president under the Constitution, end quote. Because of the uncertainty of reach of power, the Committee of Style thus could not safely choose to list all of the states on the preamble. So instead, they settled on language of both aspects that were on the table at the time, ending with, quote, we the people of the United States, end quote. Shout out to the birthplace of the term United States. That's really fucking cool, actually. However, quote, we the people of the United States strongly supports the idea that the Constitution is for a unified nation rather than a treaty of separate sovereign states, end quote. We need to take a small Celeste timeout, okay? Celeste-sponsored timeout. Here we go. Just one second. Bear with me. I must interject. I really fundamentally love this. The ideology and intention of unifying our country for the betterment of its people is what I personally align with. I fuck with that heavy, okay? However, quote unquote, our country means something different depending on who you ask, both in 1787 and in 2021. Quote unquote, we the people has always meant we the white people. How do I know that? Let me tell you, simply because... It was written by fucking white people. <laughs> you guys, come on, come on. We got to be smarter than this. Don't take my word for it, though. I'm happy to support this position. So let's do that now. Time in. Let's talk about some rich white men. My very most favoritest people to talk about, really. The following came from biography.com. Quote, America's founding fathers included George Washington, James Adams, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, James Monroe, and Benjamin Franklin, together with several other key players, aka more white dudes, of their time, structured the democratic government of the United States and left a legacy that has shaped the world. End quote. Disclaimer before we move forward, honestly, I gotta get this out there. We have to acknowledge what these men did for government, for politics, and as a principle of society, okay, that's huge, amazing, incredible, holy shit, really seriously saying those things. Dudes came together and really created this beautiful core concept, and for that, I'm proud to call myself a citizen of this country. I am indescribably grateful for what these men have created on a fundamental level. I have zero concept of what it means to not have rights or freedoms. That even today, people are deprived of all over the world, but also all over our country. Please hear the following with that in mind. When I pledge allegiance to the flag, I mean that shit. With my hat off and my right hand over my heart. However, perception, intention, and reality are rarely synonymous. The following information will have a trigger warning for anyone who has been raised in the Eurocentric education system, who has never heard the reality of history. This shit may really fuck you up. We are not liable for anyone's feelings about white privilege being exposed. 
We've had to live through that trauma too. Hashtag white fragility. Thank you for letting me share that disclaimer with you. Moving on. Now that that disclaimer is out there, I would like to tell y'all about our dude, George Washington, first president of this glorious nation. Let's spend some time learning about Georgie boy, shall we? George was born in 1732 and died in 1799. I want to start with talking about George Washington as a wee lad, okay? Childhood and education. I think it's really important that we understand the man on our singles. Number one, the papa, padre, the first founding father, the first president. Quote, Little is known about Washington's childhood, which fostered many of the fables to lead biographers to manufacture stories to fill in the gap. Among are the stories that Washington threw a silver dollar across the Potomac, and after chopping down his father's prized cherry tree, he openly confessed to the crime, end quote. Shout out to every American who genuinely believed that Washington's teeth were wood. Bless y'all. Oh my God. Stay tuned. Quote, it's known that from the age of seven to five, George was homeschooled, studied with the local church sexton, and later a schoolmaster in practical math, geography, Latin, and English classics. End quote. I would like to submit Washington's education alone as a demonstration of white privilege. I'd like to offer the analogy of transportation, so please just bear with me for a second. The indigenous people who inhabited this land, they were walking, which is totally fine, okay? They were walking and they were successfully doing so. But education is a vessel that propels us as human beings forward. George? Dude was going 50 in a 30, comparatively. And this is still a real thing in our country today. Stay tuned for future episodes. Some other fun facts about George. He lost his whole family to various illnesses of which included his half-brother, Lawrence, who he had raised from the time he was 11, and his niece two months after her dad had died. That's a sad life. George was the head of his estate by the age of 20. Whoa. 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 That's real. Lawrence had married Miss Anne Fairfax, the daughter of Colonel William Fairfax. And, quote, under her tutelage, Washington was schooled in the finer aspects of colonial culture. End quote. AKA colonization. Literally. That's that's what that is. Just so everyone knows. I'm really just going to be honest about that. Throughout his life, he would hold farming as one of the most honorable professions. It still really is. And he was most proud of Mount Vernon. Over time, dude had accumulated about 8,000 acres of his personal property. I want to take a second and just share with you guys, for anyone who isn't sure how power works in this country, it's by wealth, okay? And wealth is defined by power, education, and land. Just saying those words for you to sit with. George was a national leader and the only man of able body left in the house, which led Virginia's lieutenant governor to appointing George as the perfect fit for major of the Virginia militia. Shout out to our white privilege episode and our feelings about militias. If you're not familiar, let me tell you, we're not fans. Interestingly enough, Washington actually had been captured during the war by the French after, get this, you guys, get this. <laughs> he went to warn them to remove themselves from the land, quote unquote, claimed by Britain. The French were on land that they claimed physically in person, and Georgie boy ran over there. He skedaddled so quick to tell them they better go because Britain had said that that land was theirs. 
That's what happened. Okay. But also, I need to be really clear about this. The French were still white people. I really need to say that. The French, being white people, claimed this land. We need to call that out as well. It wasn't their land to claim, saying those words. But anyway, the French politely refused. George went and tattled to the colonies that the French didn't want to move, so they decided to go bully their way onto the land because that's what they do best. Hashtag colonization in practice. This attack started the French and Indian War, interestingly enough. The French counterattacked, and honestly, they whooped ass. And they took Georgie Boy prisoner. But don't fret, Britain bought him back. That's called privilege. After he got back from being captive, he was made commander of all of the Virginia troops at the age of 23. I'm not sure why that would be a good decision, but it happened. The reason I'm not sure why it was a good decision is because he failed real bad at this job. And he was sent home after two years. He was sent home with dysentery, but also he really was not good at this job, you guys. Quote, in 1758, Washington returned to duty on another expedition to capture Fort De Quince. I might have said that wrong. I'm really sorry. Which was still held by the French. A friendly fire incident took place, killing 14 and wounding 26 of George's men. However, the British were able to score a major victory, capturing the fort and also control over the Ohio Valley. End quote. I just really need to stop for one second because the words friendly fire and killing 14, wounding 26 in one sentence doesn't make sense to me. Why would there be friendly fire and that much death? Just that doesn't, I don't get it. Pacifist checking in. Cool. Moving on. Quote, Washington retired from his Virginia regiment in December of 1758. His experience during the war was generally frustrating, with key decisions made slowly, with poor support from the colonial legislature, and poorly trained recruits. Washington applied for a commission with the British Army, but was turned down. In 1758, the same year that he retired from being an unsuccessful war guy, he returned to Mount Vernon disillusioned. The same year, he entered politics and was elected to Virginia's House of Burgesses, end quote. So he couldn't cut it as a war guy, so he became a suit guy. That's what happened. So one month after leaving the army, he married Martha Dandridge Custis, who was a widow who came with a shit ton of everything, you guys, including an 18,000-acre estate, from which Washington personally acquired 6,000 acres. Whoa. Allow me to offer a little perspective here. That's a lot of land, without question. However, I want to take a real sidestep really quick. We're from Wisconsin, and in our state, one of the most recognizable tribes is the Menominee Indian tribe. So the following information came from menominee-nsn.gov. The Menominee tribe has inhabited the areas now recognized as Wisconsin, Illinois, and Michigan for over 10,000 years. Holy fuck, you guys. Okay, that's so long. That's just so long. Just in case anybody's curious. Quote, at the start of the treaty era in the early 1800s, the Menominee occupied a land base estimated at 10 million acres. Oh, oh my God. Speechless. Absolutely fucking speechless. Let's go back for one second. Just pause. If land equals power, George Washington had 18,000. 
the Menominee Nation was 10 million. Okay, okay. Just just saying that power structure dynamic right there, flawed, and they knew it. Quote, however, through a series of seven treaties entered into with the U.S. government during the 1800s, shout out to our Thanksgiving episode, the tribe witnessed its land base erode to a little more than 235,000 acres today. Oh my God. Their whole people, their whole culture, their whole religion, their whole everything, you guys, cut down to 235,000 acres. Let's just throw out a real quick role play, okay? I just want to do this with you guys really quick. Normally, I would do this with Allie, but she's not here. So let's do this together. We're going to be buying a lottery ticket, and you know you're guaranteed a fucking winner. You get to choose. Are you choosing the $10 million lottery ticket, or are you choosing the $235,000 lottery ticket? Taxes and exclusions apply. I'm serious. Which ticket would you rather fucking win? Okay, good talk. Back to George and his wife and all their fucking land, he also adopted her two children, which at the time was absolutely not the norm, which gives me some hope that George might have actually been a good dude with good intentions, no matter how misguided they were. So George has a shit ton of land, right? Yeah. You know who works the land? I'll wait. Quote, Washington kept over 300 enslaved people at Mount Vernon. Please note that this article said enslaved people every time the term slave was being referenced, which is a way of making white people feel better about slavery. To make the word slave sound as demonized as it is, they talk about enslaved people instead. They claim that it's more inclusive, but also, it just makes them feel better about the fact that slavery ever was a thing. Just leaving that fun fact there. He was said to have disliked the quote-unquote institution of slavery, but accepted the fact that it was legal. End quote. Interesting, then, isn't it, that the language setting the precedent of how our country was to move forward with all men is equal, that black men specifically were excluded. Irony, you guys, just really seriously. There's no such thing as coincidences. But I digress. Quote, Washington, in his will, made his quote-unquote displeasure with slavery known, as he ordered that all his slaves be granted their freedom upon the death of his wife, Martha. It was an act of quote-unquote generosity. However, applied to fewer than half of Mount Vernon's slaves, the slaves owned by the Custis family were given to Martha's grandchildren after her death. End quote. K. 1. How fucking inhumane. Done. 2. Granny died. Here are her 150 plus prisoners, who are including men and women older than you, as well as children younger than you. Have your way with them. What the fuck is that? What? Okay. Okay. Not even done, though. Three, George could have maybe not waited for Martha to die? Don't you think? Really? Seriously? He had the authority to do so. The term quote-unquote generosity being used here is a huge call-out to whitewashing. And that's the point, you guys. This exists, and we need to be aware of it. In fact, it exists in our Constitution. Welcome to Taboos. Let's talk about George as a slaveholder a little bit which is not information that you can find on biography.com, I'd like to point out. Specifically, the following came from mountvernon.org. 
Quote, despite having been an active slaveholder for 56 years, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. A man who had a displeasure with slavery was a slaveholder for 56 years? Really? 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 Okay. Washington struggled with the institution of slavery and spoke frequently of his desire to end the practice. End quote. Gross. He was the only slaveholding founding father to release his slaves upon his death. Mm. But I would like to point out that was only 123 of his 317 slaves, to be exact. Georgie Boy had become a slave owner at the age of 11. This had consisted at the time of 10 slaves that he was willed, meaning his daddy died and he got his slaves. Later, by young adulthood, he would purchase eight of his own slaves to work the property. Until 1755, when his slave purchase consisted of a documented four men, two women, and a child. I just really have to ask, if you hate the practice of buying human beings, Stop buying fucking human beings. That's a choice. Kip, kip, kip. Quote, when George took control of Mount Vernon in 1745, the population of Fairfax County was around 6,500 people. Of those people, 1,800 people were slaves directly from African origin. Oh my god! By the end of the American Revolution, over 40% of the people living in Fairfax County were slaves. Holy shit, you guys. What the fuck? That is so many people. That is such a real population. 40% of any community is a fucking real percent. Do you know what 40% almost is? It's almost 50%. Do you know what that is? That's half. Oh my God. Okay, I'm done. I work here. It's fine. Quote, the threat of physical and psychological violence underpinned slavery. End quote. Duh. You want to know why? 11-year-olds were left in charge of fully grown human beings. How do 11-year-olds assert dominance? Violence. This becomes a trained and embedded behavior in the psyche of white people to come for more than 400 years, you guys. So fucking terrible. Quote, slave owners administered punishments to control their workforce. In his later years, Washington believed that harsh and indiscriminate punishment could backfire and urged overseers to motivate workers with encouragement and rewards which was never in the form of payment or freedom, mind you. Still, he approved of quote-unquote correction when those methods failed. Mount Vernon's enslaved people endured a range of punishment depending on the alleged offense. In 1973, the farm manager accused an enslaved seamstress of being quote-unquote impudent by arguing with him and refusing to work. As punishment, he whipped her with a hickory switch, a reprisal that Georgie had deemed, quote-unquote, very proper. End quote. We're going to talk about this story. We are really going to just take a second and fucking talk about this. The article continued to talk about Charlotte's response, which was that she had not been whipped for 14 years, suggesting that physical punishment was very sporadic, but not unheard of at Mount Vernon. And we're really going to pause on the history aspect because lawyer Celeste cannot ignore the details of this story. We need to talk about them. We have the plaintiff, Anthony Whitting, a farm manager, implying he's a white man. And then we have the defendant, Charlotte, a seamstress, 
quote unquote, implying she was, quote unquote, a cleaner slave who was allowed to be in the physical presence of white people, if not in the house. Please do not miss the fact that Anthony has a first and last name and that Miss Charlotte does not. This is humanizing Anthony and dehumanizing Charlotte. I just want to point out the significance of that for you. As well as Charlotte didn't have a last name. You know why? She was property of. We must keep in mind roles at this time in history were incredibly important and very clearly defined, okay? There was not cross-functional training. There was no let me go quick help out in that department. That is not how it worked at this time in history. Just being really honest about that. So I ask you, dear listeners, just pretend to be my jury for just one second, okay? Because here we are. Isn't it weird that a farm manager would even be near a seamstress to an extent at which point he could determine if she was or was not quote-unquote working? She's a seamstress. Hmm. Okay. 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 Just a real good question to ask, right? Isn't it also weird that he could, as a whole different department of the homestead, decide the punishment of this seamstress? Isn't that strange? Wouldn't it be weird if the boss of IT came over to you in sales and started chewing you out for some shit you did? Wouldn't that be weird? Wouldn't it be weirder if he beat the fuck out of you for it? I think it would be. Maybe that's just me. Which leads me to question, if she refused to work or if she refused him sexually, obviously. And isn't it possible, rather than facing the rejection from a black woman who was beneath him, this white man could not stand the hit to his ego, and instead he hit back. Isn't it possible that he raped her? Isn't it possible her side of the story isn't being told? Isn't it interesting that the quote of, I haven't been whipped in 14 years, showing violence was sporadic, is just such a strange statement to be made to us, the reader, let alone in general. It's a weird fucking thing to say. That's a weird thing for a slave to say. Can y'all imagine a slave saying that? Oh, I don't get whipped very often, but otherwise it's great being here. That That doesn't sound real. And the reason that this is this way is to make us feel like maybe George wasn't the terrible monster that other people who worked with slaves or even owned slaves could have been, normalizing that he had them at all because he wasn't the worst slave owner. It's okay that he still was one at all. That's what this article is saying. Gross. Isn't it possible, ladies and gentlemen, that Anthony Whitting, in fact, took blame for this event to prevent George's name from being associated with this stain on his history? These are the questions we really need to be asking when we understand and look at history. This is what it means to be awakened. The opportunity of seeing the other side of the story and to be able to articulately defend it. Poke holes in the stories. They're fucking there. There's a lot under this coat of white paint. And if you just honestly chip a little bit, you will get there because it is not that deep beneath the surface. But let's go back, okay? Speaking of how not great Washington was to slaves, his teeth that we were told as children were wood, yeah, they weren't. Not even close. Quote, Deep within one of Washington's books is an entry which details Washington's purchase of nine teeth from quote-unquote Negroes for 122 shillings. Okay, 
anyone who pays for body parts at this time in history is doing so for absolute cosmetic purposes. I need y'all to know that. Medicine was certainly not to the point of organ transplant, so donors weren't really a thing. That wasn't really a concept, okay? But rather than saying it that way, the article dunks that cookie in milk so that it reads, quote, whether the teeth provided by the Mount Vernon slaves were simply being sold to a dentist, who was Jean Pierre, and then they were going to a mayor or whoever that they were originally intended for, because there is no direct link that they were purchased for George Washington specifically. Since Washington paid for the teeth, it suggests that they were either for his own use or for someone in his family, which is honestly even fucking grosser. It is important to note that while Washington paid, quote, these enslaved people, and inner quote, for their teeth, it does not mean that they had a real option to refuse his request, end quote. Okay, 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 hyena mode initiated, all right, let's fucking go. How blatantly, disgustingly untrue of a statement in its absolute purest context, okay? Washington did not pay slaves for their teeth. Because as a slave, remember how they didn't get paid? It was so much deeper than that, you guys. It wasn't just the lack of wages. Slaves of any and all color were used by white people in the fullest extent of the fucking word. If humans are mechanical, white people have defined slaves as junkyards. Spare parts open for the taking. While white people couldn't fully monopolize the indigenous population by force, they resorted to kidnapping humans from Africa and bringing them here to be sold as property. Do you know what we call that today? That's called human trafficking. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. White people have been guilty of human trafficking for at least 400 years. We invented it, y'all. We established the empire that is the most vile trade that exists in humanity today. We have to take accountability for that. That is a wrong that must be undone. And honestly, I don't even know that it really ever can be undone. But shouldn't we at least try to work toward being better collectively? Are you proud of that as a white human being? I'm not. Which is why I'm here. Which is why we are having this conversation the Thursday before the 4th of July, saying something has to change. Because even just simply put, the first person we ever trusted to represent this beautiful country, its land, and its people, while having the audacity to use the words, quote unquote, we the people, as a quote, declaration of who is enacting this constitution, the people of the United States, end quote, was vile enough to purchase a human being's body parts purely for aesthetics? Ladies and gentlemen, I submit to you that we the people means that our country was literally founded in legislation as only white people, and as such was born systemic racism, meaning our country will forever be broken as long as the preamble remains in place because we the people are not equal by the legislation fundamentally. We the people must be equal is the mindset that we need to have to create real change. And that starts with us. 
fellow white people. We must be better. We must stop oppression by stopping ourselves from being the oppressors. And then also stopping our brothers and sisters and uncles and aunties and anyone who is white from being the oppressor. We have to learn from the mistakes of the past. We have to listen to the voices of those oppressed and really just fucking listen. Don't tell them that their feelings are wrong or that you didn't like the tone in which they came out. You have no concept of what their generational trauma looks like. Oh, wait. We do have an idea of what their generational trauma looks like. Let's talk about it. Another huge shit stain on the underwear of all white people. You know how we were all taught that Hitler and Nazis were so terrible? Yeah, that's real. That's super fucking real. So fucking bad. History books describe that shit correctly. But you know why? Let's talk about that. That's the important thing here. Because it's not our history. It's not American history. So the history books could speak to it articulately. And they could really point the finger where it needed to go. Because we weren't the villain. We were the hero. Those white people aren't our white people. And we saved them from genocide. And I'm so glad. I'm so incredibly proud to be from a country that stood up to the purest evil and prevailed. Saving millions of innocent lives after the loss of millions of innocent lives. And now we talk about the raging success for the red, white, and blue because our colors showed. We're patriots. Undoing injustice. But what we all fail to call out is that while we were the patriots there, we have always been the Nazis here. Genocide, slavery, and entitlement runs in our DNA just as much as it does everyone else's. But we were the villains. We always have been. Because we knew it was morally wrong and we did it anyway. And we kept doing it. And kept doing it. And keep fucking doing it. So when I talk about myself as a white woman versus when anyone references quote-unquote white people, shit, when Tiny and I talk about white people, I am not offended. I recognize that there is a difference because we are not the same. Because I would never be able to take from anyone the way that white people take from everyone and miraculously play both the victim and the hero at the exact same time blatantly ignoring real victims and the pain that they have caused. I am white. My color does not define my character, internally or externally, because I refuse to allow it to be that way. So I really ask you to ask yourself, does your color define your character? We recently had an episode about Juneteenth where I talked about the significance of the day and honestly that we spend that day celebrating. Black people in our lives, black people everywhere, black culture, we just love Juneteenth. That is our day to celebrate. But the other 364 days of the year, this is how I move. This is what's important to me. I personally choose to celebrate because that's just me. I love to love. We celebrate everyone in the ways that we are different, but that isn't the extent of my allyship. Which brings me to a really hard conversation that we need to have, fellow white people. Allyship is a really beautiful thing. And shout out to our white privilege episode where we really spend some time talking about the difference between being a white ally and being a white savior. Love that, okay? I mean, don't love white saviors. No, fuck that shit. Terrible, terrible, terrible. But white allies love Okay? There is also this thing called a performative ally. 
And honestly, performative allies are just as dangerous as blatant racists. I need y'all to know that. Performative allies are bait put forward by true racists. What really matters, though, is the way that white people show up as allies for any oppressed people. Whether they are oppressed by race or gender or religion or sexual orientation, whatever. Humans cannot survive independently. And why would we want to? Honestly, I'm asking you that. Why would we want to? Like, I hate other humans. Real. Not you guys. Love listeners. But I say that all the time. I hate humans. I hate people. Because I do, like, more often than not, people just piss me off. Right? That's real. And yet, I still recognize the value and beauty of everybody. That's also real. And part of living with other humans is that we're all different. And that's okay. Dear white people, that's okay. You don't have to like it. You really seriously don't have to. I'm not asking you to. But I promise what you'll like less is how small your world will be when the rest of us light this bitch up with every color there is. And white people are the minority permanently. Giving you that heads up. Don't you think that we should prepare and do something about that now? Because at some point, there will be a power shift. Dinosaurs are going to go extinct again, and there will be new faces with new fresh ideas that will go into place. Why wouldn't we want those faces to be representative of what this country was intended to be? One opportunity of liberty and justice for all. We have to remember, for all means, black people, brown people, indigenous people, Hispanic people, Latina people, Muslim people, Italian people, Irish people, Polish people, all fucking people of all fucking races. All people who have made this country what it is and will continue to define this country moving forward. We need to really create real change. We need to address this and what needs to be done. Reparations need to be made. This can be as personal or as impersonal as you choose for it to be. Maybe that looks like voting in favor of the greatest good rather than your greatest benefit. Whether that's your kid's school, discussing district lines, or better yet, let's make school funding not tied to income tax. Just a thought, throwing that out there, because that is both oppressive and systemic as fuck, in case nobody has ever told you that. Maybe that means educating your kids that people with different colored skin does not determine the quality of their heart or their human value. Maybe that's a good place to start. I'm just throwing those words out there too. Maybe that means allowing people of color the space and opportunity to literally do anything. And then we have to back the fuck up and we have to let them keep it. We have to share it. That's the point. They don't need us to tell them how to function in this country. They have helped shape this society just as much as we have. And we will all live in a healthier country in every aspect the sooner white people accept that. And dear listener, you can choose to continue to be part of the problem or you can join us. But either way, we the people will be equal. So let's take a hop, skip, and a jump back to the preamble, shall we? We're going to really break it down for a second. I'm going to just throw in a little, I'm going to throw a little whitewashing translator on as I read the preamble for you guys here. I think that this is going to be really fun. So it reads, quote, we the people of the United States, which translates to we the people of the colony of the North American territory. Nothing wrong with that statement. At the time, that was a true statement. 
quote, in order to form a more perfect union, aka in order to make a perfect little colony just like the motherland wants, establish justice, or also could be read as, to make rules based on what we deem fit for ourselves and people who fall in line with the colonization agenda, ensure domestic tranquility. I just have to ask, this isn't even a translation. When have we ever fucking had this? I'm really serious. I'm just checking. Y'all were a bunch of bullies in petticoats. The fuck kind of tranquility did y'all bring to this fucking country? It's land or it's people. Please tell me that. Please address that. Okay, okay, I'm sorry. Moving on. Quote, to promote the general welfare, meaning let's make it reasonably acceptable for the people beneath us, the rich white bullies, because we need the peasants to stay in line. Welcome to Britain Jr., BTW. Quote, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, meaning we will be free and those of this land who follow the rules of colonization will also be granted their liberty, which we worked really hard for. Blood, sweat, and tears were shed to make this happen. And honestly, I'm going to leave that point right there. Blood, sweat, and tears were shed for us to have these things. Quote unquote freedoms and the premise of our country as we know it today. Regardless of which side of history you're familiar with, this is the shred of truth that must be highlighted and never ever forgotten. This line within our country's history, this line of the preamble, is the shred of truth that makes it a true document, honestly. Quote, Do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. End quote. And then they all looked at each other and said, look, fellas, we made a country. Equity is much, much bigger than just in terms of race, however, in case y'all didn't know that. But before we get into that piece, I think it's important that we learn a little bit more about another one of our pimp daddies of the country, because I assure you that Georgie Boy is not the only bastard with a slanted past, present, or future in our country. So next we're going to talk about James Adams, okay? James was around from 1735 to 1826, and the following information came from Biography.com. Quote, James was a founding father, the first vice president of the United States, and the second president. Additionally, there was like a subquote that followed that said his son, John Quincy Adams, was the nation's sixth president. End quote. Hashtag nepotism. Just throwing that out there. But let's talk about who John Adams was. According to this article, quote, John Adams was a direct descendant of Puritan colonists from Massachusetts Bay Colony, shout out to the motherland, of most white people who came to North America. He studied at Harvard University where he received his undergrad and master's in 1758. And in 1758, he was admitted to the bar. In 1744, he actually served on the First Continental Congress and helped draft the Declaration of Independence. Shout out to Nicolas Cage and National Treasure. More importantly though, shout out to Riley Poole. Riley Poole is one of my all-time favorite characters in any show, movie, existence, anything. Moving on, let's take a a high-level look at J-Dog here, based simply on what we already know at this point. If education equals power, at 16 years old, Adams had earned a scholarship to attend Harvard. At 20, he was an apprentice and studied law in the office of James Putnam. His parents are colonists that immigrated to America. And before anybody gets butthurt that I called them colonists, guess the fuck what? 
That's the literal technical term for where these humans came from. Dear white people, being called a colonist is in fact a bad thing at this point because we earned that. Our ancestors turned a word that described their home as a word synonymous with terrorism, genocide, hate. We brought this upon ourselves, even if it wasn't you and I who did it. We don't have a right to be pissy at being called a colonist. Don't like it? Be better. Don't be racist. Be anti-racist. Be an ally. Wake the fuck up. Call out whitewashing and white privilege where you see it and know how to read between the lines to discover the truth for yourself. But because John Adams' mommy and daddy were from the colonies, guess who was raised speaking the language of colonization? J-Dog. Not only were they from the colonies, they were fucking loaded, okay? Quote, Susanna Boylston Adams was a direct descent of the Boylstons of Brooklyn, a prominent family in Massachusetts. So just like recapping real quick, he's rich, white, and was raised by colonists. Amazing how that sounds like a statement that could be used to describe white privilege centuries later, isn't it? Oh, so great. Let's talk about J-Dog's professional past a wee bit, shall we? In 1765, Adams aligned himself with the Patriot cause, which we are going to identify as quote-unquote Americans, initially as a result of his opposition to the Stamp Act. Quote, he wrote a response to the imposition of the act by the British Parliament, titled, inner quote, Essay on the Canon and Feudal Law, and inner quote which was published as a series of four articles in the Boston Gazette. In it, Adams argued that the Stamp Act deprived American colonists, meaning patriots, of the basic rights to be taxed by consent and to be tried by a jury of peers, end quote. This means that he fought for taxes to be something that Americans had a right to keep the money that would otherwise be collected as tax on things like legal documents, newspaper, and playing cards. Important work. However, two months later, Adams also publicly denounced the act as invalid in a speech delivered to the Massachusetts governor and his council. What a spineless, ass-kissing waffler. That is what that is. That is like some Brett Favre-level shit right there. In 1770, Adams put his... Shout out to Brett Favre. <laughs> and anybody I just offended with that statement. There's a very clear generational line as to Brett Favre fans and non-Brett Favre fans, so we'll see who gets at me for that one. In 1770, Adams put his legal degree to use as he agreed to represent the British soldiers on trial for killing, quote, five civilians in what became known as the Boston Massacre, end quote. Time the fuck out. The second president of our country defended terrorists of America who killed American citizens infamously. Okay? Okay? Like, seriously, you guys. He's basically the Robert Kardashian of 1770, okay? That's what's going on right now. Quote, he justified defending the soldiers on the grounds that the facts of a case were more important to him than, inner quote, the passionate inclinations of the people, end inner quote. Meaning, 
he couldn't have cared less that American citizens were demanding justice for the murder of our people by the exact oppressors that they were running away from when they moved to this country. Awesome. And doesn't that sound familiar? Shout out to the birthplace of removing humanity from a courtroom and also to setting the precedence forever that cases are to be determined on quote unquote fact, which is amazing. However, when the fact is that terrorists murdered Americans today, we deployed troops for years and years and years, regardless of fact. And that's called hypocrisy. Additionally, when the fact is that someone you love was taken from the world unjustly, it makes you angry. And as humans, we want justice. That's really normal. In fact, it doesn't even have to be as extreme as removing someone from this world. It could be something as simple as you kicked my dog. That was like a famous fucking video for the longest time. People get angry about that shit and they are entitled to justice. So shout out to the birthplace of silencing the voices of victims and their family in the name of, quote unquote, the law. Quote, he believed that every person deserved a defense and he took the case with no hesitation. During the trial, Adams presented evidence that suggested blame also lay with the mob, meaning American citizens, that had gathered and that the first, quote unquote, soldier, aka terrorist, who fired upon the crowd, again, being American citizens, was, inner quote, simply responding the way anyone would when faced with a similar life-threatening situation, end quote. Sit with that, people. Shout out to the birthplace of the following. Justified police shootings, scummy defense lawyers, victim blaming built into the law as it relates to domestic policy and terrorism, and also everything else, okay? Cool, 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 cool. We've established that. Everything that is fucked about our country was pretty much born right here. Mm-hmm, yep, yep, that's what I'm getting to. Welcome to this episode. We're just gonna stop here because the rest is history. Georgie Boy and J-Dog became little colonistic friends and they had a gay old time. Here's the question I'd like to pose about our faith in John Adams' character as it relates to the foundation of our country, however. What if someone of John Adams' character were the president now? Would we trust them? Would we want such a historical flabby fish flopper to be making executive decisions about emotional things? Emotional things like the Orlando shooting. Are we seriously going to trust a man who is so inept to humanity that he was willing to put American citizens at fault for a terrorist attack? Really seriously, is that someone who you would want to be making decisions about our country today? I'm asking you that. And what if the decisions weren't even that drastic? What if it was about something else emotional, like gay marriage? or trans rights, like anything related to the entire alphabet mafia, or children, or victims. You know, humanity-type shit. The humanity of our great fucking nation, you guys. Why would we want that influence to be ingrained in the foundation of our people today? I just had to ask that question. And I had to ask it before we move on to our last president that we're going to talk about, specifically as it relates to this research and the point that I'm going to make. 
we're going to talk about my dude, Alexander Hamilton. And I only say he's my dude because of Hamilton. Thank you. Alexander Hamilton was around from 1755 to 1804, according to biography.com. So let's talk about Hammy here for a second. He was born in the British West Indies. Please note that there is a legal stipulation that the president must be quote-unquote American-born. Shout out to checking the birth certificate. LOL. But anyway, this is actually important because although Hammy was not ever the president of our country, he was recognized as a founding father, meaning, really, he was the first token non-colonist. And honestly, I find real hypocrisy in that the president cannot be born outside of these blue, red, and mainly white walls, but it was fine for building the foundation of this great country. Please note the real slant at tokenism, because, yeah. But also, please don't hear this as me being unopen to diverse thoughts, okay? Welcome to taboos. We are all about diverse thoughts here. I just really think that there's real hypocrisy there that should be called out. Hammy here had a really rough upbringing. The story is really fucking unclear. I legitimately spent like 20 minutes trying to figure it out. And I even created like a little family tree, which Allie and I would be talking about right now if she were here. So this is me telling you I even created a little family fucking tree because I'm psycho like that. But I still couldn't figure it out. So here's what I can tell you. Hammy's mom's name was Rachel Fawcett Levine, and she was married several times and had several sons with different men which at the time was literally the worst thing that a woman could do, you know, just live her life. Terrible, terrible fucking thing at the time. Her first husband was abusive as fuck. He was a quote-unquote much older merchant, which really meant he raped her, whom she had been pressured to wed by her parents when she was a teenager. So he was a child molester on top of it, to be really clear. They had a son together named Peter. This pedophile ended up being so abusive, in fact, that, quote, Levine had spent all of the money that she had inherited when her father died, a.k.a. her actual worth on this planet. And during their, inner quote, tumultuous relationship, and inner quote, if that's even what we can call marrying your pedophilic rapist. By Danish law, even it had her imprisoned for several months for adultery, end quote. AKA, that could literally be anything. If you want to think about it and let me know the possible scenarios that you've come up with in your creative thinking as to why her asshole husband would imprison her for adultery, what the real motives behind that could be, you're certainly welcome to let me know. Otherwise, let's move on. Warning. Sarcasm is embedded in the following. Quote, when she was released, instead of returning to her husband and son, the inner quote, independent-minded Rachel, and inner quote, fled the troubled marriage and moved on to St. Kitts. End quote. Really? Bitch ran for her fucking life, bro. Good for her. Fuck independent-minded. Fuck that shit. This is the 1700s. Women were not praised for being independently minded, nor were they ever encouraged to think that that was an option. If a woman was independent-minded for real, it was likely for her survival. Wake the fuck up. Quote, it was there that she met and moved in with James Hamilton, with who she had another son, James, which is Hammy's big brother, end quote. AKA, she got safe, she needed a place to stay, she likely worked for James Hamilton, and likely got pregnant in 
whatever fucking manner that happened. But please note, in 1753, women do not get to be quote-unquote roommates with men. This is not news. Quote, after moving back to St. Croix, James Sr., inner quote, abandoned the family, end inner quote, when Hammy was a boy, leaving Rachel and her sons impoverished. This tells me there wasn't much family in this family at all, for the record, because really seriously, he left them high and fucking dry. Quote, and also, this would literally be the cornerstone for the way that people recognized Alexander Hamilton moving forward in his life. In fact, James Adams being one of the top perpetuators of this being Alexander Hamilton's defining characteristic. Quote, John Adams would one day come to characterize Hamilton's rise from inner quote, humble beginnings, and inner quote, meaning the literal fucking streets, by describing the young Hamilton as inner quote, the bastard brat of a Scottish peddler, end quote. If you don't think in 17 fucking anything, a man would absolutely loathe the woman he called his mother to some degree for giving him that title, you have zero concept of mommy issues. Either good for you, or you are repressing some real shit. May the odds be ever in your favor. Don't believe me that Hammy here didn't grow up to respect women? Allow me to share with you. Shout out to Disney for buying the rights to the musical improvisation to some of the following information. Hamilton, streaming on Disney+. Plus. Dear Disney, please don't sue us. I was just giving you a shout out for this. Okay, thank you. Quote, on December 14th, 1780, Hamilton married Elizabeth, a.k.a. Eliza Schreiler, the daughter of Revolutionary War General Philip Schreiler. End quote. I need to stop here for one quick second. There are historians out there who would argue that Eliza truly was the love of Hamilton's life, okay? I am not here to rain on the parade of love. If this was real love or not, I can't say. And because I love love, I have to preface the following out of respect and gratitude for all that I love and the love in my life. Shout out to the universe and the way that that works. Sappy Serious over. Moving on. I think it's weird as fuck that the dude happened to quote-unquote fall in love with the daughter of the general of the Revolutionary War in 1780. Love was not a factor in marriage at this time by any stretch of the imagination. If you got married for love in the 17th century, you were a lucky bitch. okay? The reason the love thing comes up, though, is because it's the whitewashing way of justifying and accepting Hamilton into the group. She was his ticket into the original good old boys club, you guys. You don't think a man raised by the streets and a mother who's been abused his whole life doesn't know how to swoon a 1700s woman? Really? Quote, by all accounts, they, inner quote, enjoyed a strong relationship throughout their marriage and would have eight children together. End inner quote. Hold that thought. We're going to come back to that later. Despite the revelation that Hamilton once conducted an inner quote extramarital affair and inner quote with a married woman named Maria Reynolds, 
Hamie's affair with Reynolds is considered one of the first sex scandals in our country's history. End quote. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, before we call to the stand Miss Maria Reynolds, I'd like to submit the question. If Hammy really loved Eliza so much, isn't it weird that he'd cheat on her? Mother of his eight children, proof of their consistent and physical quote-unquote love. But really, do people who truly love their partners cheat? Or maybe they truly do love their partners. But cheating immediately tells me that there is no one he loved more than himself. People who love and respect you would never intentionally make the choice to cheat. And I don't know who needed to hear that, but I'm being really serious. People who intentionally choose to cheat do not love you. Not more than they love themselves. But the plot thickens. Bum, bum, bum. I would like to now call Miss Maria Reynolds to the stand. The following information came from an article titled Alexander Hamilton's Adultery and Apology from the SmithsonianMagazine.com. Quote, Revelations about the Treasury Secretary's sex life forced him to choose between candor and his career. End quote. Let me just tell ya. Let me tell ya, okay? Any man who has come up from the streets to a seat of real power, no matter how tokenistic, values nothing more than his career. Men kill for much less than money and power and respect finally earned after a life of poverty, okay? So please do not underestimate Hamilton and his actual motivators. I would like to throw out a disclaimer for the following. The following alludes to graphic content and imagery. Trigger warning ahead. Per the article, quote, Maria Reynolds, a 23-year-old blonde. We're going to stop, ladies and gentlemen. Let's ask ourselves, why is her appearance the first comment offered in this article? Why is that relevant information? Quote, came to Hammy's Philly crib to, quote unquote, ask for help. Her husband, James Reynolds, had abandoned her. And then the article said, quote, not that it was a significant loss for Reynolds had grossly mistreated her before abandoning, end quote. Does that sound familiar? A little sort of like Rachel's experience, maybe, doesn't it? Definitely. Yes, I thought so too. Interesting perspective, I think, that should be considered. Besides that, however, let's address the actual context here, which is fucked. It is 1791. The type of help that a married man could offer any woman other than his wife was employment, okay? So this article is telling us that this beautiful, sad damsel showed up looking for work at Hamilton's house. And please note, at this time, Hamilton is 34 years old and was serving as Secretary of the United States Treasury. And this is where shit gets good. Quote, Hamilton was... Inner quote, eager to be of service, and inner quote, but inner quote, he recounted later, saying it was not possible at the moment of her visit. So he arranged to visit her that evening, money in hand, end quote. Okay, so you don't need to think like a lawyer or honestly, even like a hustler to know that every part of that quote was fucking yucky, gross. Good men who respect women do not only do so under the guise of nightfall. Especially not with free money in fucking hand. You guys. Oh my god. We have to be smarter than that. Quote, when he arrived at the Reynolds home. Yes, I did say that. Her house. He arrived at her house. 
She has nothing. Why in the fuck would the secretary treasury of our country go to this literally poor abuse victim's house at night if he really wanted to fucking help her? If he really had integrity and character the way that we would expect a founding father and leader of this country to have. But I digress. Quote, Maria led him upstairs into a bedroom. End quote which is so fucking subjective, where all battered women bring politicians with integrity to discuss business, obviously. Quote, A conversation followed, at which point Hammy, inner quote, felt certain that other pecuniary consolation would be acceptable, and inner quote, to Maria Reynolds. End quote. Ladies and gentlemen, the word pecuniary means relating to or consisting of money. Alexander Hamilton told this woman he felt certain that he could offer her comforts other than money after refusing her money in broad daylight, after hearing her story, after seeing her sweet 23-year-old face desperate for help. Men with integrity who value and respect women never offer their cock as consolation for your husband beating you and leaving you to die, okay? Okay. If she consented to this, that's an entirely different conversation. But one could think of a similar strong nobody who hated his mommy. Ed Gein raped and killed women who reminded him of his mommy, and we call him a predator. We sure as shit did not put his face on money. I'm just saying, perspective is important. Always. But regardless, at minimum, Maria Reynolds is a prostitute. And sex work is work, yo. I'm not mad at Maria for this. I'm not holding her accountable for this. Thank you very much. Let's fast forward through all kinds of drama. Hammy and Maria did whatever they did for a summer, just one, until James Reynolds returned, quote, to the scene and instantly saw the profit in the situation, end quote. <sighs> I think it's really interesting that her abusive ex came back and saw the opportunity for blackmail and no one thought that that was fucked. But also, his motives could be any of the following. Exhibit A. James Reynolds could have not been a terrible dude. That's entirely fucking possible. Maybe they made him the villain throughout this whole story to deflect from the fact that Hamilton here is really a shady fucking dude at minimum. Maybe James came home from work and found Hamilton raping his wife. And Hamilton paid him for his silence. They were broke, you guys. That's not a stretch. Exhibit B, extortion. James was a piece of shit, according to this article. Maybe he came home and saw consensual or non-consensual somethings and said, pay me or I'm telling your pal Georgie boy. You know, your boss, the president. John Adams was honestly dying for a reason to socially execute Hamilton. Fun fact, dude hated him. So this would have been a prime opportunity for James Adams to shove it in George's face that Alexander Hamilton was a piece of shit, just like he had been saying all along. I'm just pointing that out as well. Or Exhibit C. James Reynolds was a pimp who sold his wife to Hamilton for his own personal pleasure and profit, and likely against Maria's conscious awareness of the situation. Given some of the letters that I've seen, I recognize that she sounds like a victim and that she sounds trapped, but by what and to what extent really is unclear. All of these exhibits, however, don't really make Hammy sound like a dude who we should be trusting to make decisions about women's bodies, minds, abilities, or rights. You know, women's rights. 
So I have to ask, why would we the people, which includes women who have rights, which I just need to sidestep and say only because we fought like hell. Oh my God. Not because men gave them to us, I must say. Trust a man like this man in any of his potential scenarios with establishing the foundation of anything that would pertain to us. Why would we trust this motherfucker? Why? I'm really asking you, dear women. Why would we trust this dude to make decisions about us and our bodies? I'm really curious. There was additional drama with Hamilton and Eliza and their eight trophies of love, which included a very fucking lovesick letter that people like to talk about Hamilton sending to Eliza. And there's a whole historical perspective there. But if you want to hear about that, if that's interesting to y'all, let us know. You can shoot us a tweet and we will share that side of the story and maybe some bonus content. With that said, as a feminist, I believe in equity for all, regardless of race regardless of sexual orientation, regardless of being a woman, and regardless of being a man. But ladies and gentlemen, throughout this whole episode, I've demonstrated to you that the foundation of our country as we know it today was not built for all races. It was not built for the LGBTQ plus community. It was not built for women. The foundation of our country was built to serve rich, white, straight, cis, men. And I actually found this quote today while I was doing just some fucking around on the social medias and I really wanted to share it. This quote is from Tom and Lorenzo on Twitter and it really spoke to me for this episode. It says, quote, when powerful white men use words like lynching and witch hunt to describe their perceived persecutions, it's because there are no historical analogs to white male persecution. End quote. There's no term for it because historically, there is no such thing. You guys, really seriously, historically, there is no such thing as actual accountability for the actions and misleadings and failures and broken promises and hurt and terrorism and genocide and hate and divisiveness that has been caused by white men in this country leading up to this point. And you know what? Okay, what's done is done. We've assessed the case. We can make a verdict to recognize the reality of the past, to own the choices of shitty human beings who came before us, before us, you guys, the people. And we can demand more. We can expect more. We deserve more as the people. In order for that to happen, though, we have to knock it all down and come together as the people with the understanding and expectation that we the people must be equal. And I rest my case. But now back to reality. I'm sure that a lot of you are out there thinking, okay, Celeste, but then what? Or how in the fuck would that even work? Shout out to Allie. She's fucking thinking it right now, you guys. Telepathy, okay? And I'm going to tell you honestly, I don't have a fucking answer. And also, that's not my fucking job. That's not my goal here. My goal is to make you question what you perceive as truth, as just, and as an opportunity for something better. Because why wouldn't we want that for everyone? The system we live on was built. It is a fabrication. It is a construct. It could be unbuilt and rebuilt. There are good humans out there who know that that's true, who are way smarter than I am, who should really get on that because I cannot stomach the idea of Tiny or Moose growing up in an environment that values human life less than a metaphorical set of principles created centuries ago by a dying fucking breed. If you were offended by that thought, I am exactly talking to you. 
Shout out to Andrew Yang, who has so many brilliant ideas to save our fucking country and contribute to humanity directly. If y'all aren't familiar with Yang Gang, I highly suggest looking into him. But also, you guys, people who think like that, that's who we need to be looking to. That's who we need to be asking these questions to and give them an opportunity to answer them, to show up, to follow through. Not all politicians are crooked and shady and meant to destroy us as a country. Not all of them are like that. Spend some time to find the good ones and then back them and support them. Demand more. Really, seriously, we have to do it together. And with that, dear listeners, my call to action for you on this one is to really ask yourself, are you proud to celebrate our country the way that we culturally are taught to now with this information? Or are you pissed? Do you feel robbed of the image of freedom that you conceived in your head before this point? I know I did. And I still am pissed. And this is what I can do about it. And that's all I can do. And I'm okay with that. Because now your eyes are open. My voice isn't the one you need to hear. It's the people. You, me, we. And the people are tired of serving a country that they built, that they pay for, that they've died for, that in return promises freedoms that never ring true, half-assed solutions that are amended, and that can be taken away at any time by any individual state. That's not a country I'm proud of. And we all have to come to the conclusion of, collectively, that rich white men have been fucking this up long enough. Someone else needs the fucking stage. Or shit will never ever change. I need you to sit with that, you guys, and really ask yourself, do you want change or do you just want to demand it without any expectation of actually working for it? Because if that's your position, that is white privilege and we have to be better than that. Our country will never be better if we don't step up and step out of the way. Because this episode is airing before the weekend of the 4th of July, I really would like to end it on a patriotic note to say thank you to the men and women who have served our country in whatever way that means. Whether that means in the form of labor, in the form of service, or in anything else. I am so honored to be celebrating the men and women and children and lives that have been dedicated to this country, who have built this country. Because without each of them, I wouldn't have the things I have today. I wouldn't have the freedoms that I have. And there would be no hope of the freedoms that we can all have in the future. So with that, I ask you guys to celebrate safely, be kind to one another, put sunscreen on your kids, be empathetic and compassionate to any neighbors or family members that you might have who are veterans who may have a really hard time with the fireworks. That's a huge call out that I also wanted to make before this episode wraps up. So please just be aware of your surroundings and others and again, celebrate, but really ask yourself, what is it that you're celebrating? Don't just do it blindly. And on that note, you guys... Don't forget, do you and be taboos. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.